Well, good morning, everyone. It's good to be with you. We sang some very old hymns there this morning, but balance was restored when David asked my brother Danny to identify himself by raising his hands, and that released Danny's inner charismatic. Um, That's a sentence I never thought I would utter. If you're here for the first time, can I give you a really warm welcome? Hope you feel at ease among us. Um, I want to begin by asking you to imagine that you have been asked to write a short essay entitled A Brief History of the World. Your task is to summarize the story of the universe and our role in it from the very start to the very end. Now, the scientifically minded among you might start with a big bang and end with a description of the universe as a cold, motionless microwave soup. The more artistically minded might focus on the struggles of human beings down through the centuries to make sense of our condition. But at least some of you would just give up. The task is impossible, you would say. Because what you call history is just a jumble of events. There is no story to make sense of it. As someone famously said, the most accurate chart of the meaning of history is the set of tracks made by a drunk fly with wet feet wet with ink staggering across a piece of white paper. Does history have a story? In other words, is there an author who is taking us somewhere? Or does stuff just happen? Some of you in this audience come from Asia. And the ancient religions of the East thought that life was like a wheel, that it went on and on and on in an endless cycle. But Christianity replaced the idea, at least in the West, replaced the idea of the wheel with the idea of the arrow of life. So instead of a big wheel, we have a big arrow. Christianity claimed that history is a story with a beginning, a middle, and an end. We find meaning for our lives when we locate ourselves in that grand story. And according to the Bible, the story begins when God creates the world for humanity to live in, but humanity chooses uh, to rebel against him. And then we come to the middle of the story, which centers on how God enters his own universe as a man, the man Jesus Christ, and he comes to provide us with salvation which allows us to end our rebellion with God. And after he achieved that great objective, Christ returned to heaven. And over these next four weeks, we're going to focus our attention on the end of the story. Well, that's not entirely accurate. If all we did was think about the future ending of history, then we could rightly be accused of escapism. It's like every June, uh, I always tell students this, every June, round about exam time, I prayed very, very specifically for the return of Christ. Uh, So it's more accurate to say that we'll be thinking about the end of history and how we should live now in the light of that future. And the book we're going to study together is Paul's second letter to the Thessalonians. So let's get underway by reading chapter 1 together. If you've got a pew Bible, it's page 989. This is the word of God. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. 
Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. To this end we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. And now I want to, to, to uh, get, ask you to turn back in your Bible to the Old Testament, to the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 2, Pew Bible, page 568. This deals in a very dramatic way with the same topic. Now, the passage we're about to read is going to be also important for next week's study, which focuses on the rise of the Antichrist. So, Our prayers are with those who are picking the praise for next week. Um, I really should not have made that joke. But anyway, uh, Isaiah chapter 2 and verse 10. And the prophet writes, Enter into the rock and hide in the dust from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty. The haughty looks of man shall be brought low and the lofty pride of men shall be humbled. And the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. For the Lord of hosts has a day against all that is proud and lofty, against all that is lifted up, and it shall be brought low. Verse 17. And the haughtiness of man shall be humbled, and the lofty pride of men shall be brought low, and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. And the idols shall utterly pass away. And people shall enter the caves of the rocks and the holes of the ground. For before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty, when he rises to terrify the earth. In that day, mankind will cast away their idols of silver and their idols of gold, which they made for themselves to worship, to the moles and to the bats, to enter the caverns of the rocks and the clefts of the cliffs. From before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty, when he rises to terrify the earth. Stop regarding man in whose nostrils is breath, for of what account is he? Now, many people today believe in the principle of uniformity. They may not use that term, but they believe that as it was yesterday, so it is today. Life goes on pretty much as it ever had. The sun uh, rose and set yesterday, and so it will rise and set today. And it will rise and set tomorrow. People like that tend to mock the idea of that one day the Creator will bring proceedings to a halt. But the claim that Jesus Christ will return to the earth to execute justice has been made since the earliest days of the church. Paul's two letters to the Thessalonians deal with the return of Christ as David told us last week. 
His first letter focuses on Christ coming for his people, for the church. But the apostles' focus in this letter is on Christ's return to execute justice in a final judgment. Now, I wonder what you think about that. The idea that one day we shall each have to stand before God and give an account of our lives seems horrible to some people. Our culture rejects the idea that we live accountable lives. And what's all this talk about justice? Surely this is just religious people trying to frighten the rest of us with their talk of a final judgment. Well, if you think like that, it's probably because you have never suffered serious injustice. The Beatles sang that line, all you need is love. Well, tell that to those poor Sri Lankans searching through the wreckage of their churches for the bodies of their children. The idea that all you need is love is downright stupid. It's believed by people who know nothing about history. In fact, the most common cry from the human heart down through the centuries has been for justice, not for love. So much misery has been caused by wicked people oppressing the weak, oppressing the vulnerable, exploiting them for selfish gain. I guarantee you, that if we were transported to some of those slave ships that plowed the ocean 200 years ago, we would all be crying out to God for justice. The Old Testament recognizes this truth time and time again. In 1 Chronicles, we read these beautiful words. Then the trees of the forest will sing for joy before the Lord, for he is coming to judge the earth. You see, the hope that one day wrongs will be righted, that justice will be dispensed, That will make sense to anyone who has suffered terrible injustice. Without that hope, life reduces to power and chance. Think of the orphans exploited by brutish masters in Dickensian London, starved and abused, dead by 20. Without the hope of justice, those little lives were nothing more than meaningless misery, followed by oblivion. Now, in this study, I simply want to walk through the text as we find it in chapter 1 of 2 Thessalonians. So I'd be grateful if you would keep the passage in front of you. Uh, It's page 989 if you've lost your way. Once we get past the normal greetings, verses 3 through 12 divide fairly obviously into three sections. So in verses 3 to 5, we see God preparing a people for his kingdom. Then in verses 6 through 10, we consider the revealing of Jesus Christ. And then in verses 11 and 12, we learn how to live in the light of the future. So that, at any rate, is how I'm going to structure our thinking. Verses 3 to 5 give us some insight into the lives of these Thessalonian believers. They were experiencing real hostility from the rest of society in that city. Paul talks of their persecutions and afflictions. Now, if I had been giving this talk a decade ago, I would have had to work hard to get you to feel any empathy for the Thessalonian difficulties. But society has changed. The winds of, diff- of hostility to Christianity are beginning to chill our own hearts. Those of you who are parents, well, you may not experience much affliction or persecution, but your children probably will. So if you want to prepare them for that challenge, Second Thessalonians is important. It always seems to be the case that persecution brings the best out of God's people. Conversely, giving Christians political power is nearly always a disaster. Now, 
When there is persecution, of course the hangers-on, if you like, the pretend Christians who just want a cultural comfort blanket, they always disappear. But real Christians, the ones who stand for truth even when that makes life uncomfortable, they tend to grow in their faith the more they are tested. And Paul uses some very descriptive terms here to describe their spiritual growth. He says their faith is growing abundantly. And the picture here is like that of a big healthy plant with luxurious foliage. That's the first thing he says is growing. Then he says their love for each other is increasing. Faith and love. Faith and love. Those are interesting measures of how well a church is doing, aren't they? I asked myself that last night. How well is Crescent doing in terms of its spiritual growth? Is our faith growing? Is our love for each other growing? Those two tests are the real measures of a church's spiritual progress. So let me ask you this. Do you trust God more than he did a year ago? Has your love for the other members of this church deepened in recent months? Or perhaps have you been careless or ungrateful towards those who have served you unselfishly? Self-absorbed narcissists are very good at polite indifference. But they don't exercise faith and they rarely show love. Now the obvious question is, why would that matter? You see, if Paul's focus is on the end game, on the end of the great story of the human race, why does he start off talking about behaviors in the local church now? And the answer is found in verse 5. The qualities that we develop in this phase of history, while we are being afflicted, those are the very qualities that make us worthy to take up positions in the kingdom of God. What sort of people does God want to exercise responsibility in his kingdom? Well, people who are full of faith and love. People who know how to trust God and how to love other people. And when we view our lives in that light, then even persecution and affliction can make some sort of sense. God is using the injustices of this present age to develop qualities within his people that will be needed when they assume responsibilities in the eternal kingdom. The kingdom of God will not be run by people who are control freaks or who love power. It will operate by faith and love. So I suggest we see in these opening verses, verses 3 through 5, that God is preparing a people for his kingdom. Now in verses 6 to 10, Paul reaches the climax of his argument. At least it's the most dramatic part of his argument. He describes that moment when Christ returns to establish justice on the earth. In fact, he doesn't actually use the word return. He chooses to use the word appear. He's making the point that Christ has never been absent he has merely been invisible. But now he is revealed. And he appears with all the authority of heaven behind him. Now it's really important we don't uh, read these verses carelessly and leave them with some vague sense of a, an angry Zeus-like figure arriving to zap everyone who's ever annoyed him. In the original language, Paul is careful to use words that are judicial. They are words used in the courts of law. And that's because God's action is not ultimately based on power, it's based on justice. In verses 6 and 7, we see the two principles of justice laid out. First, when a moral debt has been incurred, that moral debt has to be paid. And then secondly, when someone has suffered injustice, they will be granted relief. The metaphor of fire is used in verse 6, but of course that is not literal fire. 
In Scripture, fire purges and destroys. So this fire will purge the effects of sin and will burn down the idolatries, the power structures, and the ideologies that underpin all the kingdoms of this world. Burn them to the ground. And because they are false and flimsy things, they will burn up like a tanker full of jet fuel. Now, how will that happen, you ask? Well, without being pseudo-intellectual, when that which is ultimately real, when absolute truth and goodness are, are revealed and we stand in its presence, all that is false will disappear in a terrible conflagration. Now, Christ won't just destroy false ideologies and power structures. He will also judge individual men and women. In Matthew 13, the Lord Jesus tells a story about a man who plants a field of wheat. But while this man is sleeping, uh, an enemy creeps out in the darkness and plants weeds uh, among the good seed. And when the weeds become visible, the manservants want to try and pull the weeds out. No, says the field owner. Let them grow together until the harvest, and at that time I will tell the harvesters, first collect the weeds and tie them in bundles to be burned, then gather the wheat and bring it into my barn. Later on, the Lord Jesus uh, explained his parable to his disciples like this. He said, as the weeds are pulled up and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. Our Lord told a similar process about this separation process this time uh, about fishing. And I know (laughs) as much about fishing as I do about gardening. But in this case, he describes the kingdom of heaven as a net that was let down into a lake and caught all kinds of fish. And when it was full, the fishermen pulled it up on the shore. Then, Jesus said, they sat down and collected the good fish in baskets, but they threw the bad away. And the Lord explained the story this way. This is how it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come and separate the wicked from the righteous. So the message of Scripture is entirely consistent. It isn't only structures and ideologies that will be judged, but individuals too. And that begs the question, which individuals will receive judgment? Well, says Paul, those who do not know God, who refuse to obey the gospel, they will be banished from his presence. Now, when Paul talks about those who do not know God, he's not talking about what we might call innocent ignorance, just a lack of information. The term he uses here is discussed in great length in Romans chapter 1. And in that passage, Paul argues, he says, everyone has a basic and innate knowledge of God, at least of of the creator God. Everyone knows enough to be able to repent and turn away from worthless idols. But, he says, men and women deliberately suppress knowledge of God, and they refuse to acknowledge him as God. So, He's talking here of people who deliberately refuse to acknowledge God or to obey his gospel. And what will their punishment be? Well, verse 9 requires careful attention. First, Paul says, it will be an eternal destruction. In chapter 2 of this book, chapter 2, verse 16, Paul talks of the eternal comfort of the believer, the eternal comfort of the believer. But here he talks about the eternal destruction of the unbeliever. Now, that seems like a contradiction in terms. Perhaps the best way to understand it is to remember that the human soul is eternal. But those who deliberately reject God in this world will lose more and more and more of their humanity in the next age, becoming less and less human. C.S. Lewis once said this, 
To enter heaven is to become more human than you ever succeeded in being on earth. To enter hell is to be banished from humanity. What is cast or what casts itself into hell is not a man, it is remains. And the second phrase in verse 9 explains how this process takes place. The punishment, it's, in, it's a final, irrevocable separation from God. It's really interesting, you know. In First Thessalonians, when uh, Paul is talking about heaven, he tells us very little about heaven. All he tells us is that we will be with the Lord forever. And in this passage, when Paul is talking about the place called hell, all he tells us is that it is the place where God is not. Now think about that. God is love and kindness and patience and joy and loyalty. So when someone refuses him and chooses to live apart from him, then their eternal destiny must be somewhere where God is not. And where God is not, there is no love or kindness or patience or loyalty. Now that might seem like a hard doctrine to you. But let us be logical here. What is the alternative? Let me quote Lewis again. He says, In the long run, the answer to all those who object to the doctrine of hell, the answer is itself a question. What are you asking God to do? To wipe out their past sins and at all costs give them a fresh start, smoothing every difficulty and offering every miraculous help? But he has done so on Calvary. To forgive them, they will not be forgiven. To leave them alone, alas, I am afraid that is what he does. In contrast to that utter horror, verse 10 describes the reaction of those who love the Lord to his appearing. We and all those who have believed will marvel at him. Now why? Well, think about it. We struggle through life in this sin-sick world full of hatred and violence. In our own hearts we find jealousies and pride and greed. But in faith we hold on to the truth that God is good. We refuse to jettison the idea that qualities like love and loyalty and justice are objectively real. And then one day the skies will part and we shall see in Christ the source of all that is good and noble and true. For some reason, I seem to be quoting Lewis a great deal today. But he describes the point I'm trying to make brilliantly at the very end of the Chronicles of Narnia. One of Aslan's faithful followers cries out, I have come home at last. This is my real country. I belong here. This is the land I have been looking for all my life, though I never knew it till now. That is exactly how a faithful believer will feel when Christ is revealed to us at the end of the age. Perhaps I'm talking to some weary believer just now. And your life is a grey, desolate affair. You don't spring out of bed and pull back the curtains to welcome another day of joy, excitement and achievement. The valley is dark and the shadows are everywhere. A good day is when you manage to keep putting one foot in front of the other. Perhaps you're weighed down by physical illness. Sickness or infirmity have drained all your energy. Or perhaps you've been wearied by looking after a loved one with a chronic illness. I will never get better. 
And often, if you're being honest, you carry on out of nothing but a dogged sense of duty. Well, my brother, my sister, the story of your life will not peter out into the blackness of oblivion. One day the skies will part and Christ your Savior will appear. In the language of the Song of Songs, the day will break and the shadows will flee away. The little glimpses that you have already had of God's goodness, of his moral character, that will be like faint starlight when compared to that moment when the Son of Righteousness appears with healing in its wings. Affliction is hard to bear. But given the context of our passage, the most obvious application concerns those who have experienced serious injustice. The horror of being accused of something that you didn't commit. The years of waiting for vindication, but you have remained steadfast. That is the literal meaning of the term back in verse 4. Steadfastness means to remain under, to remain under a heavy burden. Perhaps the injustice came in the form of a betrayal or abuse. And a great fault line has opened up in your personality. One that has left you unable to trust. Well, one day, my brother, my sister, you will receive justice. Your accusers will have to admit that they were wrong. You will receive relief from the burden of carrying an injustice. But listen to me carefully. You do not have to carry that burden now. If you want, you can hand it over to the Savior and hear his words, Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay. I say this with all sensitivity. One of the most destructive reactions to injustice is to let it stew inside you, allowing yourself to become embittered. When I was young and stupid, that's distinct from being old and stupid, if anyone wronged me, I sometimes daydreamed about getting my own back. I comforted myself with fantasies where I received public vindication and my enemy was disgraced. But over the years, I have learned to trust in God's justice. Instead of stewing in bitterness, it is a wonderful moment when a Christian hands a situation over to God and says, Lord, I leave this injustice with you. If it is possible, I would love to receive vindication in this life. But thank you that one day I can trust you that the truth will be told. So we have thought about God preparing a people for his kingdom. And we've considered the appearance of Christ to judge the world. And in the final two verses, verses 11 and 12, the apostle brings those two points together. The first was about the present. The second was about the future. But now he asks us to consider the present in the light of the future. How should we live, given what we now know about the big story, how it's going to end? Now, that sort of logic is not confined to Paul. We find a very similar argument in Second Peter. In that little letter, Peter's description of the end of the world is even more dramatic than the one we have here. But all his talk about future events leads up to one stomach-jolting question at the end of the letter. He asks, in the light of these things, 
What sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting and hastening the coming of the day of God? And I mention that to reinforce the point that the teaching about the return of Christ is used by the New Testament writers to motivate believers. In my youth, preachers used to focus on the return of Christ to frighten unbelievers. Of course, as we have seen, it's important to warn non-Christians that every human being will be held to account. The consequences of the decisions we take in this life will stay with us for all eternity. But in Northern Ireland, we need to reclaim the truth that Christians should live their lives in the light of the return of Christ. Evangelicalism in Northern Ireland suffers from a terrible genetic defect. We have only taught ourselves what we are saved from, not what we are saved to. I am astonished at the number of Christians who deep down think that all that really matters is to have that moment of conversion. Everything else is regarded as a sort of advanced degree for the really keen types. But that false teaching flies in the face of the New Testament. Why does it matter? Well, the carnality and worldliness of the Christian community in this part of the world can mostly be explained by our disinterest in what we have been saved to. Some of you know I spent a lot of my time pretending to listen to young adults. Many of them were raised in sheltered evangelical homes. And now they aren't entirely sure if God exists. And the same underlying defect emerges in every conversation. Their faith is little more than an infantile acceptance of a story about avoiding hell. They simply have no idea how to stand for Christ in a pagan world or how to move from being a child of God to being a grown-up son or daughter of the Most High. So let's ask the most basic question of them all about these two letters to the Thessalonians. <laughs> Why on earth would Paul spend most of his time with these raw converts, teaching them eschatology? Have you ever seen a basic discipleship course that spent five out of six studies talking about end times? His aim, shared with the Apostle Peter, is to get Christians to live now in the light of the future. So the phrase I want to burn into your minds, the one sentence I hope will remain with you from this study, is found in verse 11. That God may make you worthy of his calling. Let me say this into some sad, hurt heart just now. You can use this affliction, this persecution, if that's what it is, to live a life worthy of your calling. It's commonplace today to hear young Christians talk about God's power. They want to see it manifest in some way. But notice here that God's power is directed to the very specific aim of making us worthy of our calling. So when we resolve to do something good or we undertake some work of faith, it is God's gracious power that turns that motivation into a reality. And by empowering us to do good, to trust him in faith, God changes us into people who are worthy of the kingdom of God when it appears. The result, Paul says in the final verse, is that people can see Christ in us as they watch our lives. But we are also glorified in him in the sense that we become more and more human. So we're done for today. God is preparing a people for his kingdom. 
Jesus Christ will appear to judge the world, and we are called to live now in the light of the future. Next week, we shall consider the first 12 verses of chapter 2. You may wish to read them over the week. Uh, They deal with the intriguing question of the rise of the Antichrist. But our study for today is over. We're going to have a final hymn, and then I'll close in prayer. Thank you, Jim. Our final hymn is 497. It'll be on the screen. Um, And it refers to that future day when every knee will bow and every tongue confess you are the great I am, the first and the last. We'll stand to sing. Uh, Just to remind you, the cafe is open at the back of the church. Please stay and enjoy some hospitality with us after the service when Jim closes in prayer. Standing to sing 497. Please be seated. Thank you again for coming, and please do stay uh, for a coffee and a chat. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for reminding us from your word that we should live accountable lives. We pray that that truth would sink deep into the hearts of everyone in the room. 
But Father, we're conscious that there are some here today who are hurting, who are sad, who carry a huge weight of unhappiness because they have been treated unjustly. And so I pray, Lord, that they would know in their hearts the truth that they can trust in your justice, that one day the truth will out. And pray you give them courage to live in the light of that future. Protect us from bitterness. Protect us from seeking our own vengeance. But help us to trust in the one who one day will part the skies and judge the earth with fairness and impartiality. And we pray for those in the room who are suffering affliction. We pray, Father, that you would encourage them as they reflect on the end of the story. That one day, the day will break and the shadows will flee away. And finally, Lord, for those raising young children who have to prepare children for a culture that may treat them with increasing hostility, we pray that you would help them to build this understanding of your grand story into their lives so that their worldview would encapsulate the end of the story as well as the beginning, that they would know what they're saved to as well as what they're saved from. So we ask that you would seal your word in our hearts and part us in your fear and with your blessing. In Jesus' name, amen.